Who wants life? Who wants life? That's what Rabbi Alexander would say over and over in the market until people surrounded him. Did come, Rabbi, tell us, how do we get life? We want life. We are Chafetz Chaim. And then Rabbi Alexander would teach them the verse that David HaMelech taught. If you want life, one of the first things a person needs to know, run away from deceit. Deceit, I understand what lies are. What's deceit? Is not the same thing? It's a world of difference. Lies, we've talked about lies. Lies are bad. Lies are an abomination. But deceit is the next stage. It's not a good one. It's a stage of evil. It's a stage that unfortunately has infiltrated our lives, infiltrated our communities, infiltrated society at large, infiltrated certain businesses. We're going to mention certain things that are going to probably make a few people upset, whether it's in the jewelry business, in the uh, wigs market, merchant cash advance, all types of industries are mentioned in this lecture. And quite frankly, everyone needs a little bit more truth, and you'll see that by the end of the lecture, some people will be celebrating that they are part of the truth. Some people will celebrate to fight for the truth, while others will fight against the truth even harder than they ever did, because the deceit is simply too deep within their lives, and they're not willing to let it go. Watch it, share it, enjoy it, share your comments, let us know what you think of all of it. But most importantly, remember, behind everything else, the purpose is to be holy. We're back, Baruch Hashem, after an amazing holiday of Shavuot, Matan Torah, and Bezad Hashem continuing our series of the Jewish Ashkafa, the Jewish ideology, how to think Jewish according to the Torah, and uh, most importantly, try to uh, get a better understanding of how to apply these things to our day-to-day lives. Tonight's show is going to be for the Refua Shlema, for uh, Rabbanit uh, Sarah Bat Anat, Rabbi Fahim Ben Shulamit, Rabbanit Levana Bat Sarah, Avimori David Ben Esriya, Imimorati Doris Bat Jora, and for all of Am Yisrael and all the righteous Noahides that continue to watch our shiurim, continue to contribute, donate uh, as much as they can, and especially those that uh, donate their time and resources as well to uh, help our organization share the Torah around the world. Uh, tonight, Bezat Hashem, we're going to go over a lot of the interesting things in our continuation of uh, trying to identify the lies, not only the ones that are sometimes around us, but also within us. And uh, it's critical to know if we are fakers, if we are honest, if uh, what we're doing sometimes seems honest, but in reality is, is false. And of course, everybody within themselves knows what the obvious lies are, but we're talking about things that are sometimes deeper, things that perhaps you may not even think of as being problematic. Uh, and of course, this is something that is found in society on a regular basis, but uh, we can't fix the world before we fix ourselves. So the Chazonish has uh, been telling us over these last several weeks about the different details uh, in regards to uh, lies as part of the series of the Jewish ideology. And uh, last week, one of the things that uh, we uncovered from the teachings of actually the Mikhtav Me'eliyahu, Arav Desler, Arav Shalom, was that it's the lie itself really has everything to do with what the will of Hashem is versus what the will of the person is. Meaning that it may be that the will of the person is to say something that is true, like one plus one equals two, that is true. But if that one plus one equals two will end up hurting people 
and will not be for the betterment of their lives, will not be for the betterment of their servitude of Hashem, one plus one can actually turn into a lie. So lies themselves are not necessarily what we always think they are as far as we see them at face value. If it's true, it's true. If it's a lie, it's a lie. It's not necessarily so simple when it comes to serving Hashem uh, to tell the difference between lies and truth. Of course, there's the obvious big things, uh, but uh, there are certain things that are requiring us to learn and to delve deeper into the lies and make sure that we stay as far away from them as possible. One of the things that we mentioned last week is that sometimes people are trying to do kiruv, they're trying to help other people, or at the very least, it seems like they're trying to help other people by telling them the truth, telling them the, the truth of the Torah, that uh, if you follow the Torah, you'll have a reward. If you don't, you'll have a punishment. But sometimes their delivery method is not exactly so uh, ideal. Let's just say that where sometimes they're so focused on the fact that they already possess the truth, they know that there is a reward and punishment, that they completely ignore the fact that their audience sometimes does not know and does not accept their reality yet of there being a reward and punishment. So when they go out there and they attack them by letting them know that, oh, you're an idol worshiper, you are uh, going to go to Gehenom, you're going to get punished, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, that's not necessarily the best approach on day one. Again, there are certain people that that's the only approach that you could deal with, that you can, uh, uh, that you can uh, uh, work with. But the general public is not necessarily always that case, especially not the first time that you approach people. So it's very important for everybody out there that is sharing these lectures with their family, with their friends, with people that they actually care about, and even with people that they don't necessarily care about, but they want to help. It's very important for you to know who your audience is. If you're simply sharing these lectures and the books that we have with uh, just, you know, sharing it on in the public, there's no problem. There's nothing that you need to worry about. All of that work has already been done for you. But if you are sharing it, meaning that you're simply repeating what you've heard, then you have to know your audience much more. You have to make sure that you know who you're talking to, what their level is, and what they're, where they are with their pre-existing belief before you decide which one of the lectures, which one of the statements, which one of the things you're going to repeat and to whom. So it's important to, for a person to know their audience and most importantly, aside from that, to remove their own personal ego and their agenda if you actually want it to work. If you actually want to help people, the ego, the uh, self-righteousness, the, uh, the mentality that you are right and everyone else is wrong, you are a king and everyone else is a dog, that has to go into the garbage pail and never to be seen again. Because if you want to help people, you have to remove your own personal interest. This is the reason why you will always see a huge difference in success between the rabbis and speakers that speak out of their heart without any agenda of asking for money or getting paid per lecture versus the people that may very well be amazing speakers, but they charge an enormous amount of money each time they speak, or even if they charge a, uh, you know, a small amount of money, but still they charge money for the lecture or else they won't speak. You'll see that the success that the two have is, has a very, very big difference. In fact, I saw recently, there was a, uh, someone that I know that uh, is a Talmud Chacham, very serious Talmud Chacham and very well uh, known person. 
that, uh, you know, he writes books. He's, uh, he's a Torah scholar for many, many years. And uh, from time to time, he gives lectures. Now, one time he calls me and, uh, you know, we're talking and uh, somehow it came up that uh, he just uh, delivered a speech somewhere in the United States and uh, they paid him $5,000. So he said, oh, you know, it was great. I spoke for an hour and uh, they paid me $5,000 and uh, now I could just go do X, Y, Z. Now, I thought to myself, on one hand, obviously this is a blessing because it, from his perspective, it's a blessing because he was able to make money, make a living, pay the mortgage, pay the rent, whatever it is, do whatever it needs to do. Now, on that end, certainly there's a blessing there. On another end, what the crowd doesn't realize and what perhaps sometimes even the Talmud Chacham himself doesn't realize that that $5,000 that he got actually is a curse. It's not a blessing. And one of the reasons for that is because when you see that there are people that are actually Torah scholars, they have an enormous amount of knowledge and they also have that truth, that truth that can impact people certainly the general public is not going to chase after the truth. Not in our day. At least once Mashiach comes, that's going to happen. But until then, people are going to be more likely to chase the lies that are out there and be willing to pay an arm and a leg for it before they chase the truth. So the truth is something that Moshe Rabbeinu gave us for free. Hence the reason why the Rambam says we need to teach for free. This doesn't mean that it's free for us to run the operations, to publish the books, to do everything that we do, but that's what allows us to tell people, if you want to donate, donate. If not, not. But the key is not to speak under the condition that if you pay me, I'll speak. If not, I'm not going to speak. And the reason for that is because if you have the knowledge and the truth at the same time, you need to do as much as possible to share it. And if you're going to restrict yourself and thereby restrict the public from that truth that you possess, from that truth that you've acquired through toil, what ends up happening is that that $5,000 turns into a curse because now you're only going to speak when people have enough merits and enough money to, in so many words, bribe your yetzerah, bribe your evil inclination to simply be quiet for that day and let you speak. Now, how many times can you do that during a year? Usually not often. Usually the ones that get the speeches and get the stadiums and get the big speeches and everything else are the ones that are not going to help the public. In fact, do the exact opposite. So while a person can be an extraordinary Torah scholar and know an enormous amount of Torah, sometimes you will see that Torah scholar is not going to speak very often because there is a fee that is necessary, but at the same token, is a yetzara, is an evil inclination tool that is uh, st stopping the truth from coming out. This is the reason why Rabbi Ephraim and I have obviously always uh, made sure that uh, none of the things that we do are for a uh, upfront cost of any kind, anyone that wants to donate, by all means, unless we see people are taking advantage and we see that it's turning into bad, meaning that people are simply not... Uh, uh, doing what their share, they're not really supporting, they're simply inviting you to a place where instead of at least providing you with a large crowd of people and a, an audience that's going to hear you, they invite you to go drive five, six, ten hours, or even fly across the country just for 10, 20 people. That obviously is not the right uh, uh, reciprocation for what you're investing into it. The point being is, is that 
this sense of truth is something that's not necessarily going to come to anybody naturally even if the person is a torah scholar a person has to constantly do what's called self-accounting to see exactly where they stand and what they're doing and what's the purpose behind what they're doing so if the great torah scholars have to check themselves needless to say us little people also have to check ourselves so the chazonish has delved into the world of lies to let us know that lies literally are not simply the difference between truth and falsehood as much as they are the difference between the will of hashem versus what's against the will of hashem so now we're going to go into another section that we read briefly a few weeks ago and delve deeper into it to try to figure out if we are fakers each one of us obviously if we're watching if we're learning if we're doing we think that we are people of truth but are we always that way are we always telling the truth not necessarily just to ourselves but even to, to the people that we love the people that we deal with in business so the chazanish says the following if the slight lie that does not harm anyone is hateful purposeful deceit which is in in, uh, in Hebrew, it's called mirma, purposeful deceit, speaking with a barbed tongue, using lies, ruses, and plots calculated to trick one's fellow man is surely doubly abominable. And the sages call this illness of the soul, stealing of the mind. So here the Chazonish is giving us another aspect of the world of lies. Well, first and foremost, he's letting us know that there are different types of lies. We've already heard enough about how God hates lies. Midvar sheker tichak, from a thing of lies, we have to stay away from, says David Melech, where unlike all of the other sins that are in the Torah, whether it's do not murder, don't desecrate Shabbat, uh, don't uh, do a lot of other things, we see that when it comes to lies, the Torah says, Midvar sheker tirchak, from a thing of lies, stay away from. Not only don't lie, but stay away from lies. Stay away from anything remotely close to lying. So, we already know that God hates it. Yet, the Chazonish tells us, there's something even more hateful than just the general lie, which is mirma. Mirma is purposeful deceit. The Yaakov Avinu, in the Torah, in the book of Genesis, Yaakov Avinu takes the blessing from Esav. And after he takes the blessing, which we already discussed in the previous weeks, was exactly the right thing to do because it was the will of Hashem. But when Esav showed up and, in so many words, asks for the blessing that Yaakov already took, Yitzchak says to him, your brother Yaakov, he took your blessing in a way of deceit, in a way of what's called mirma. Mirma. So here we see that Yitzchak is giving us the definition of this action, which it's not just he lied, it was a thoughtful process. It was something that had some type of outcome. 
It wasn't just simply telling somebody, oh, I uh, went to the uh, Bahamas yesterday, when in reality you, was, you stayed home and you cleaned out the garbage cans. Or you tell somebody, oh, listen, yeah, I just bought uh, myself a brand new Lamborghini. In reality, you don't even have a motorcycle. Those are waste of life, waste of time lies that are meaningless. Here we're talking about a lie that is an act of deceit that has thought behind it, where there has to be some type of trick that is going to cause another person to do something. So Yitzhak Avinu tells us what Yaakov did to you, Yitzhak, wasn't just like he just showed up and said, I'm Yitzhak, give me the blessing and that's it. There was a lot of thought put behind it. He had the whole jacket on. He knew that there's a significance to the, to the blessing. He, he wasn't just settling for his own blessing. He knew he had to get your blessing. There's a lot of thought behind it. Later on, Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu has to deal with something similar from his sons. After the evil monsters from Shechem rape his daughter, Chamol rapes his daughter, Dina, who the Midrash says was a young girl, younger than 12 years old. She was a precious young girl, untouched, unharmed, completely pure, made a mistake by looking where she shouldn't have looked, captured by one of these evil monsters, who then did awful things in the most gruesome, painful way. So now, after this monster, Shechem does what he does, They come to Yaakov. Dina is still held hostage in their palace. But they have the audacity to come to Yaakov and say to him, listen, whatever happened, happened. We're not saying it didn't happen. But we can make amends by simply allowing your daughter to marry uh, our son. Let him marry each other. So Yaakov who's boiling inside. And how do we know he's boiling inside? Because look at how he preserved her, how he was worried about her. There's a Midrash that says that Dina was his only daughter. There is another Midrash that says that she was actually one of 13 daughters, where each one of the tribes had a twin sister. So twin sister for each one of the tribes, plus Dina, 13, but... Some Midrashim, most Midrashim do not say this. Regardless of that, we still see that Yaakov Avinu was very worried about Dina since she was a little girl. Because when he came, when he left Lavan's house, and he knew he was about to meet Esav, the wicked Esav, he allowed the entire family to meet Esav, except Dina, where he hid her in a box. Because he didn't want Esav to see her young beauty and want to marry her. He doesn't want her to marry this evil monster. So we see how Yaakov Avinu was very careful with Dina since she was a little girl, never wanting her to be with anybody bad, never wanting her to see anything bad, literally took care of her in the most phenomenal way. As a side note, Rabbi Ephraim told me a story where he said that years ago, they... Uh, 
when he was still in uh, Netanya, this young man, they uh, went to uh, the grave sites of some tzaddikim with one of the big mekubalim that uh, is uh, still there in Netanya, Rabbi Amos. Rabbi Amos is a very famous mekubal. He lives in Netanya over there. And uh, Baruch Hashem, I had the uh, privilege of meeting him once, years ago. And uh, Rabbi Amos is a famous mekubal, a very, very serious person, a unique uh, and, and literally one of a kind. And it takes time to, for a person to understand what's happening simply because, you know, mikubalim usually are not ones to uh, communicate in a uh, traditional way. But those that are around him, those that learn from him, those that uh, are uh, constantly uh, yearning there, uh, are earning as much Torah as possible from him, certainly benefit from him. He saved many, many families, especially families of crime, turned them into righteous people. Anyway, years ago, Rabbi Amos told them they wanted to go to the grave sites of Tzadikim. And, uh, you know, so a bunch of people went, and uh, Rabbi Amos was in a car that was literally a uh, very cheap, beat-up car, and he had his daughter with him. He brought his daughter with him. So the Talmidim, where they ask Rabbi Amos, Kvodarav, you know, you could be in this car. You choose to be, you know, he lives literally as far removed from materialism as you can possibly be. So he has obviously to ask him to go into a fancy car is a you know, complete waste of time. But he said, but perhaps your daughter, we could put her in a different car, a little more comfortable. And he says to them, I have a treasure. Yeshli. I have a treasure. A treasure you have to keep close to you. And this is Rabbi Amos and his little daughter. Why? This is what it is. Treasure. Yaakov Avinu had a treasure. Her name was Dina. He did not want Esav to look at her. He did not want Esav to even know she exists. But yet later on, what happens, happens with her and Shechem and Chamol. Later on, these evil monsters come to Yaakov and tell him, listen, let them marry each other and that way we fix everything. Shimon and Levi speak up and say, well, of course we can't marry you people because you have no uh, circumcision and it's uh, an embarrassment for us to be associated with such people. First of all, as a side note, we see how proud of their Yiddishkeit were Shimon and Levi. They weren't concerned about, wait, 99.999% of the world is not circumcised. And we have no qualm about telling them that we would be embarrassed to be associated with you, that you are the norm. We would be embarrassed to be associated with you. Unlike today where sometimes Jews don't understand the privilege of of being Jewish, of being connected to Hashem, of being the chosen people that are embarrassed to wear a kippah, embarrassed to be religious out, you know, on on their exterior as well as their interior. Shimon Levi says, listen, you want to marry us? First and foremost, you should know. We'd be embarrassed to marry such people. Why? You are the norm. You are the norm. You don't have a circumcision. You are the norm. We don't want to be that. We're different. This is already before Matan Torah. So all of a sudden, they say, listen, listen, fine. We'll get a circumcision. What's the big deal? Okay, so we have a little surgery. Hurts for a few days. 
if that's going to make peace, and we're going to marry into your girls, you're going to marry our guys, and our, our guys marry your no problem, fine. That was the plan, that was the discussion, but of course this was all a act of deceit. Because Shimon and Levi waited for the third day after the circumcision of that, uh, of, of that community, and then it went killed all of them. Now, the Ramban, Nachmanides, says on that parasha that Shimon and Levi acted according to the Torah law. How could they possibly act according to the Torah law? Because there are seven Noahide laws. And one of the seven Noahide laws is that you're not allowed to have a community of Gentiles without a court system. This community violated that, uh, that law. Why? They didn't have a court system. They kidnapped a girl, raped her, horrible things happened, and no one said anything. That's a violation that the entire community violated. On top of that, there's the act of immorality, another violation. And of course, idol worshippers, that's a needless to say. In so many words, Shimon and Levi had something to rely on by killing these people according to the Torah. There's nothing wrong with what they did as far as implementing the law of Torah. But yet, Yaakov Avinu rebukes them harshly. Not just during this time, but literally at the end of his life. Saying that cursed be their anger. Why? Why is Yaakov Avinu not telling his two sons, Chazaku Baruch, good job. You killed the rapist. You killed these evil people. You killed these pedophiles. You killed them. Good. Good job for you. Why? He's not saying that what they did as far as executing the law of the Torah is wrong, but rather the way they did it. Where if you wanted to execute the law, execute the law. But why did you do it with deceit? Why did you make them believe that you are really trying to make peace and tell them to go do the circumcision, but in reality all along, you're planning to kill them. That is not what I wanted. That is not truth. So even though the ultimate action itself is true, you've turned it into a lie by doing it with deceit. So here we see that the Gemara in Masechet Chulin says that it's forbidden page 94a which is what the chazonish brings says that it's forbidden to mislead people including non-jews and there's several examples that we're going to go into in a moment and at the ramban wrote in his commentary about this parasha like i just mentioned that the people of shechem deserve to be put to put to death according to the torah law for not observing the seven Noahide laws and not establishing a law system, despite seeing that Dina was abducted and, and were violated. But Yaakov did not agree with what his sons did when they killed all the men of the city because they used a deceit, a ruse, saying that they would allow the marriage if the people of Shechem would circumcise themselves. Since the people of Shechem were convinced of the son's integrity, and we're sure that they would not harm them. Here is the last few words are the key words of why I repeated this whole thing. 
the Chazonish here is saying is that it's not just that they lied. You lied to make sure that these people trusted you, and they did. That's what makes this act of deceit falsehood. That's what makes this act of deceit something forbidden. Now, the Gemara brings a few examples of lies. Lies that perhaps a person may not even think is a lie. First and foremost, the Gemara in Masechet Chulin mentions that lies are forbidden for a Jew to do both to other Jews as well as to non-Jews. In fact, the Rambam, when it comes to the uh, uh, laws of interest and, and business dealings and so on, as well as the Shulchan Aruch, says that it's even worse to deceit non-Jews than it is to deceit Jews. Because if you deceive a Jew, that Jew will blame you. But if you deceive a non-Jew, he will blame all of the Jews and actually create anti-Semitism as a result of this one lie. He had one bad experience, two bad experiences, three bad experiences with a couple of different Jews. And he decides that he hates all Jews because he assumes that all Jews are the same. This is the reason, or at least the pretext, or the excuse that many anti-Semites use where they simply pinpoint the evil acts of several different Jews that did to them or to society, whoever they did it to. They say, oh, see, these Jews, they did this, they did this, they did that, and therefore all Jews are the same. Now, we've spoken about this extensively in the past. This is obviously wrong to do not only for the Jews, but it's wrong to do to any community because the acts of individuals are no way to represent a society, no way to, to, to say that this is simply the acts of everybody, just like you wouldn't uh, accuse any one particular society, whether they are African-American or Asians or Arabs or whoever they are, for being criminals or thieves or rapists or whatever other horrible thing there is in society, just because there's one, two, three, or even ten of them within that community. Unless you see that's the teachings of the community itself. There's no qualm about saying that the Palestinians are taught evil. There's no qualm about that. Why? Because they themselves publicize that that's what they teach. They have camps, they have all types of trainings, and they have literally entire uh, a curriculum to teach them to hate Jewish people and to kill them. So to call them racist, uh, 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 terrorists, and things of that nature, that's not a contrary. They're not going to be offended by that. Why? Because they themselves publicize it. But to go do that with other communities obviously is wrong so first and foremost a jew must realize that there is no permission to lie to anybody not to non-jews not to jews not to anyone and then there's a couple of things that uh, the gemara mentions as examples one time there was a uh, uh, few tzadikim following their rabbi shmuel and uh they were crossing the river and they had to go on a ferry and the ferry was operated by some non-Jew. And at the end of the ride, Shmuel tells his Talmud, is, uh, the person that's uh, working for him, compensate, compensate the ferry operator. 
He compensated him. He paid him. But Shmuel was unhappy. So the Gemara asks, why is Shmuel unhappy? He asked the guy to compensate him, to pay him. He paid him. So why is he unhappy? The Gemara says that's because he paid him with non-kosher chicken. They had some non-kosher chicken that, you know, they shecht the chicken and it didn't go right. Instead of disposing it or giving it to somebody or even selling it to non-Jews, telling them this is not kosher, here you go. He kept it. He kept it unbeknownst to Shmuel. He kept it. It's worth money. And he figured I'll use this as a currency. Here you go, here's a chicken. Why is this a problem? Because he didn't tell the non-Jew that this is a non-kosher chicken. And therefore, there's a possibility and even a likelihood that this non-Jew says, wow, this is a very, very pricey payment he just gave me. He gave me one of the chickens of the Jews. Those chickens are more expensive than the chickens of the, uh, of the non-Jews. Why? Because they go to the, uh, uh, the whole system of slaughtering it the right way. And if they don't slaughter it the right way, they, they don't eat it. So this must be an expensive chicken. He gave me a big amount of money, more than uh, what I deserved. Let's just say for hypothetical reasons, the uh, kosher chicken is worth $100 and the non-kosher chicken is worth $50. So he really only owed me $50. But he gave me a chicken that's $100. So he's like, wow, thank you. Shmuel was unhappy about that. No, why'd you do that? Now he thinks that you paid him more than you did. You didn't. That's a lie. That's stealing his mind. Another example that uh, the Gemara gives, or a few different examples, it says, Rabbi Meir used to say, a person should not urge his fellow to dine with him when he knows that he will not be able to dine. In so many words, don't invite people to any type of event when you know for sure they can't come. You overheard from somebody that your friend is uh, going away somewhere or he's simply not going to be available on a specific date and you happen to have an event on that date. Don't invite that friend to that event when you know for a fact that he can't come. Why? That's stealing his mind. That's stealing his mind. That makes him think that you actually want him to come. And you say, yeah, but I do want him to come. No, you don't. You don't want him to come. Why? Because... If you wanted him to come because you care about him, you wouldn't hurt him by reminding him of something that he's missing out on. You want it to seem like you want him to come. You want it to seem like you like him. But in reality, you just want to make yourself look good. You want to make yourself look good like, oh, listen, you know, we're good friends. I'm having an event. Come to my event. Oh, you can't come? Oh, it happens to be on the same date that the whole world knows that you're leaving and you're not going to be around? Oh, yeah, wow. Well, I wish you were there. That is simply making you look good and making him feel bad. There's no sense of truth there. Certainly, this is something that is commonly done with people because they want to make themselves look good. Making yourself look good while hurting other people is not an act of truth, and certainly not friendship. Another uh, thing is sometimes when people invite you to meals, 
They invite you to meals in places that they know that you can't come. Either because it's too far, or it's, there's, you know, certain problems with the place, whatever the case is. Sometimes they'll say, listen, you want to come over for, uh, you know, for Shabbat? I say, yeah, sure, of course, yeah, it sounds great. Yeah, yeah, you don't, you don't, uh, you know, want to miss it. It's going to be a great Shabbat. Come over, great, great. Anybody else coming? And you start telling them, yeah, yeah, you know, your enemy number one, enemy number two, the one you can't get along with, your former partner, your ex-wife, your ex this, your ex that. And you're, wait, wait, hold on a sec. I didn't know all these people are coming. I can't come. Oh, no? Why not? Were you not friends with all of them? Oh, I didn't know. This is evil. And unfortunately, there are some people that love to do this. They love to put people in uncomfortable situations. Sometimes even worse, they won't even tell the guy that all of these people that they're not exactly in good relations with are coming simply because they figure, oh no, let's just see what happens. Maybe they'll make peace. This is certainly not a way to make peace. There's a time and a place for everything. This is not one of them. Don't pretend to be Aaron Cohen on other people's accounts. Put him in the same place as his ex-wife. Put her in the same place as her ex-husband, especially when they're coming with their new partner. These are acts of evil that people do, sometimes because they're completely insensitive, other times because they're simply evil, and the third option is they're just simply stupid. None of the options are good. None of the options are good. You have to be very careful with who you invite, when you invite them. Know that you have to take into account their issues, their interest, their benefit, even if it is you that is exerting yourself and, and in preparing and spending, it doesn't mean anything. Just because you're spending doesn't mean that other people have to be suffering. So it's important for a person not to invite people to places that will create more problems. Next, Gemara gives, don't make numerous offerings of gifts when you know that this person doesn't accept gifts. Now, I know in society, there's many people love gifts. Even though Shlomo Melech says, uh, a hater of gifts would live. Now, there are some people that love gifts. Righteous people in general don't necessarily chase gifts. And sometimes they are even at a point where they don't accept gifts. Not accepting gifts doesn't make you righteous. In fact, many times it's just a pretend act. They pretend like they don't accept gifts, unless the gift is really big. You offer them a, uh, a meal. No, 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 it's okay, I'll pay for myself. You offer them a stay in a hotel. No, no, it's okay, I'll take care of myself. You offer them a car. Oh, thank you, wow, very thoughtful of you. Oh, hold on a second. The hotel you didn't want, the, uh, the dinner you didn't want, but the car for $150,000, that you want. The plane you want. Okay, so stop pretending. But there are some people that won't accept any gifts. Certain tzaddikim don't accept any gifts. There was a Talmud Chacham, that uh, well-established Talmud Chacham, that uh, had a house in Netanya, and uh, he was leaving town, so when uh, Rabbi Ephraim was looking for a place to stay, because he was staying with his, uh, he was coming to visit his parents for the holiday, for uh, Sukkot, I believe it was, 
they needed to find a place, and uh, they asked the Kila, who knows if there's a place available. This guy said, this Tommy Chacham said, oh, listen, stay in my place. Stay in my place, we have a house, it has the rooms, stay over there. And it's very close to where the, the family is, perfect place. Okay, great. Any, uh, how much is it going to cost? You go, no, no, there's one condition. What's the condition? No money. What do you mean no money? He's taking your house for a week and a half. It's, it costs you money. Whether you're whether you there or not, the house costs you money. There's the electric, there's the water, there's stuff. You know, you're paying rent, mortgage, whatever you're paying, even if you're not paying, still there's a value. No, 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 no money at all. And please make sure not to even leave any gifts. That's the only condition. That's the only condition, nothing. Now, this was obviously unusual, but that was the condition. No money exchange, nothing. There are certain people that refuse to receive any gifts from anybody. Now, you going out there, knowing that they don't accept gifts, they've already told you we don't accept gifts. Everyone knows they don't accept gifts. And you go out there and say, listen, we really uh, love your work. We wanted to uh, give you a small gift. You know, here you go. It's a small gift. It's only $100,000. Small gift just between us. Don't do that. Why? He already said he made it part of his life's work not to accept gifts. Don't give him a gift. Why? Because number one, he already said he doesn't want it. Number two, which is more critical, if you're doing it knowing he doesn't want it, he doesn't accept it, and it's known that he hasn't accepted it from anybody else, all you're doing is you're offering him something that even you yourself don't want to give. Because you're giving it with the hope that he says, no, no, I don't want. But yet you still look good. Because you offered him the gift. You offered him the gift. But you know, in the back of your mind, deep down in your stomach, you hope you're like, here you go. Oh, please, says no, say no, say no, say no, say no. Here you go, here you go, here you go. Oh, no, please, no, say no already. What? Oh, no. Oh, you didn't want it. Why? It's a gift. Oh, my wife worked on it. It's a really gift. No. Yes, yes. You want it. No, you didn't want it. Wow. Okay, okay, honey. Honey, said no. <laughs> yeah, oh, wow. You didn't want it. You didn't want it. Wow. You don't take Oh, you don't take gifts. Ah, oh, wow. I didn't know that last 87 times you told us. I didn't know. Wow, you don't accept gifts? Psh, ah, I didn't know. Wow. Well, we're gonna, because we're, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna give you the gift. Ah, you didn't want a gift. Ah, okay, okay, fine, fine. You don't want gifts. Okay, fine, fine, okay. No, I have somebody else. No, no, don't worry about it. You don't have to give anybody else to suggest to give the gifts to, because we already have somebody in mind ourselves. We already have somebody in mind ourselves to, to, to give the gift to. And it's a whole joke. It's literally a joke that you're playing on yourself. Why? Because what do you think? Hashem doesn't know what's in your mind? What do you think? Hashem doesn't know what's in your mind. Hashem doesn't know you're a faker. Hashem doesn't know you're a liar. You actually think you get any credit for this in Shemaim? Maybe you're going to fool people. But Hashem, you never fool him. So the Gemara says, don't offer gifts. Don't be a faker. Don't be a faker. There are some institutions. They don't accept gifts from outsiders. They only accept from specific types of people. Rare, but exists. There are all types of organizations that they only want specific types of gifts. Don't offer them something else. Why? If you're going to give, the most critical part of giving is to give with the other person in mind. 
what they need, not what you want. Don't give what you want to give, but rather what they need to give. So it's important for a person to have that in, in their mind, even when they're, in essence, doing something that appears to be good. Next, the Gemara gives another example, says, he shouldn't open for him a barrel that has been sold to a shopkeeper unless he notifies him that they're sold. Nor should he say to him, anoint yourself with oil when he's actually offering from an empty flask. This is a couple of different examples where sometimes when somebody in those days, it was a people would have barrels of wine. So every so often you had to open a barrel of wine, but you were careful when to open it because as soon as you open the barrel of wine, you had to make sure you drink it within a certain time frame because it also would go bad. You would lose out. Now sometimes a person is needs to open a barrel of wine, and just so happened that uh, he has a guest. So as soon as the guest sees, oh wow, you open a barrel of wine for me. Ah, thank you. Wow, that's such honor you're giving me. You can't let him think that. You can't let him think that. Why? It's not true. You're not opening the wine because of him. You're going to open the wine regardless. Today, it's a little different. It's a bottle of wine. So unless you have very expensive wine that you're never going to open, usually, you know, if you're going to, let's say, the, the wine that you drink traditionally is, I don't know, $10, $15, $20 wine. But you have a bottle in your house that you speak, uh, you know, you keep for special occasions—a three, four, I don't know, five hundred dollar bottle of wine. If you were going to open up five hundred dollar bottle of wine anyway, because it's your, I don't know, anniversary, or you know, it's uh, it's time to drink it, whatever it is, and just so happen that somebody comes to you and says, "Oh wow, you can open it! Wow, you open it in my behalf! Wow, thank you very much!" Don't let them think that. That's a lie. That's a lie. That is stealing his mind. Don't make people think that you're doing something for them that you wouldn't do otherwise. Now, the Gemara also says that you should make sure to do this calculation that if you were going to do it for him anyway, meaning you have a guest and that in reality he's a regular typical guest, you see him once in a while or he's nothing that uh, you're not going to open a whole barrel of wine for him, then you have to let him know. On the other hand, if he is a special guest, he just arrived from a different country, he's somebody extremely important, that had you known that he's coming, you would actually open a barrel of wine for him, then for him, it's okay for him to think that. You could even tell him, listen, I didn't do it for you, but I would do it for you. Why? Because you're a special guest. That's okay. But the truth is that only you know whether that statement is true or not. So don't lie about it, say, I would do it for you anyway, when you really know that you wouldn't do it. Hashem knows the truth. So these are some of the examples. Another example that they mention is the, uh, the whole thing with flask of wine, a flask of, uh, of oil, offering something in reality that you don't actually have. It's empty. You know that he's not going to take it. You're offering him something that is really empty, hoping that he says no. You know, sometimes people offer things that they don't actually have, hoping that the other guy says no. Similar example to what we gave before. Also, in the acts of business, business is something always very important to, to, uh, to uh, relate to is that he shouldn't sell his fellow a sandal made from leather 
of an animal that died on its own under the pretense that it was made from leather of a living animal that was slaughtered for two reasons one because he's deceiving him and two because there's danger involved so here the Gemara goes into more specifics and says that if you're going to do business make sure that your business is kosher because if you're selling something for example if you're selling sandals and you're selling a sandal that really is a uh, very pricey because it's from specific animal that you're slaughtering but it just so happened that this one particular sandal that you made wasn't from an animal that you slaughtered this animal died on its own you can still use its body you still use the leather it still makes more or less the same exact thing you cannot sell that for the same price you cannot sell it as the same product why number one you're lying to people if people are, are paying you that price because it's that and it's really not you're a liar two the Gemara mentioned something else that's not necessarily as common today which is that there is a danger danger meaning that if the animal died on its own from disease and rather than being slaughtered then obviously this could be dangerous to people so what is this similar to in business today number one if people are selling a uh, computer let's say or a bag or some type of product that has or watch that from the looks of it from the acts of it from everything else is 100% just like the original you have let's say some people that are manufacturing fake Rolex watches or all types of high high priced watches Patek Philippe Rolex Frank Mueller and whatever other brands that are out there that are very very pricey jewelry and there are people today that are much more advanced than what they were 20 30 40 years ago you know back then you were able to tell a fake from a mile away if it was a fake Rolex you could only sell it to fools that don't know the difference but if you bring that fake Rolex or fake watch to a dealer they're gonna see they look at it they're gonna laugh at you sell me a fake watch I'll give you five dollars for it if you want but today the fake watches are so good that number one it's hard to tell without looking at the serial numbers without even if you look at the serial numbers double checking that the serial numbers weren't already reported somewhere else as counterfeit even more so you have to double check the insights if the serial numbers really match all of the parts because sometimes they'll use one part that has a serial number on it while the rest of it doesn't have bubkis in it it's made in china at some little hut of really clever people so you have to really know what you're doing to make these fake watches and even more so to spot these fake watches why the price difference is astronomical if it's if it's real it's 30 40 50 100 thousand dollars if it's fake 100 bucks 200 bucks 500 dollars why 500 dollars because today the fake watches are at such high level that sometimes they're still worth a lot of money not anywhere near as much as if they are real watches but they're still worth a lot of money back in the day they used to be uh you can make the watch for uh sell it for ten dollars it's fake but today some of these fake watches are really really high level and the same thing with bags and things of that nature when they get these designer bags these louis vuitton bags and gucci bags and all these other amalek brands uh bags these are uh uh, uh, different designs that are very pricey now if you have one of these fake ones 
and you know for a fact you have the real one you have the fake one you've compared the two they're identical they're both same type of precious metal they both have the same type of mechanism they both have everything the same only difference is one of them is made by the actual manufacturer that has the brand on the watch the other one was made by one of your friends you cannot sell that as a real watch you have to sell it as a fake watch why just like the Gemara says it's an act of deceit and if you sell the fake watch as real you could be sure not only is this an act of deceit that's a sin but there is not going to be any blessing whatsoever in anything that you do that money will end up going to problems irs problems lawsuits medical bills all the worst things in the world that's what that money is designated for so if you want to raise yourself enough money for a future lawsuit for a future medical case for a future lung that you'll need for future problems that's the type of money that you make you make it from things that are dishonest if you don't want those problems stay away from dishonesty simple many times people think they're going to get ahead if they do dishonest business you never get ahead doing dishonest business you see all the people that do dishonest things in the end they're exposed in the end they lose everything in the end it's public embarrassment in the long run no one wins from dishonesty and one of the reasons is because as the radak says which we're actually going to go into his commentary on Tehilim in a few minutes Adak says Hashem made sure to institute into the world not only the teachings that sins are bad and is not the will of Hashem and it's obviously going to get punished but rather the teachings that sins are bad for you meaning they create a bad life and the outcome of sins the outcomes of things that are not the will of Hashem always end up yielding bad results it may not appear to be bad initially because you have a stash of cash you have houses you have all the materialism but if you follow the uh, the uh, the the actual history of that person the history of that money the history of all of that you'll see that ultimately only bad came out of it only bad came out of it same concept when people go into business they do this honest business this honest partnerships these types of deals are always always going to end up being uh, cursed so if a person has something that's fake he has a fake bag but he has some of the biggest experts in the fake market and the uh, uh um this type of uh, industry make the bags they're following exactly what louis vuitton and all the designers are doing they're following exactly what gucci is doing all the stitches all the tags they make sure that it has all of the inside designs everything is good in the store the bag is for five thousand dollars it took them maybe 40 bucks 30 bucks 20 dollars to make they don't want to sell it for four thousand they want a thousand they're saying to you that we got it off of some truck as if it's lost and found as if it's real this is an act of lies that will end up yielding many many problems many problems so a person needs to know that the acts of lies are not necessarily always the most obvious ones but usually the ones that are the most difficult to overcome are the ones that affect you personally especially your pocket because you figure that there's something that's going to allow you to justify there's some type of internal permission 
this internal permission. One level of internal permission, as Rabbi Ephraim teaches, is that is an internal permission. He says, listen, the guy is lying to me anyway. He lies to other people. He steals from other people. So what's the problem if I steal from him? There's an old uh, uh, adage that they say in, the, uh, in Israel, uh, you know, people that obviously don't learn Torah, they say, uh, someone that steals from a thief, he's absolved. This is obviously completely fabrication, has no, con- you know, no concept of truth to it whatsoever, but it sounds good. Someone that steals from a thief is absolved. It's, not a, it's okay for him. Wrong. You have no permission whatsoever from stealing from a thief. Now, if you're stealing back your own stuff from him, he stole the back from you, you're stealing it back because that's the only way to get it back. That's a different story. You're not really stealing. You're just taking back your property. But to steal from a thief because he is a thief, there's no permission to do that. Needless to say, if he didn't steal from you. So one of the internal permissions is that people say to themselves, listen, they're stealing. I'm stealing. So it's an even game. I'm the modern day uh, Robin Hood. The guy that steals from the rich people. They teach this to kids that it's okay to steal from rich people because they have so much extra. This is the deformed education in society. Where they think that, oh, if they have so much, therefore it's okay if I took from them because it wouldn't affect their life. It doesn't matter if it's going to affect their life or not. You're taking something that doesn't belong to you. It affects your life. Needless to say, it affects their life anyway. Why? Because the moment you stole from them, Already their sense of safety is gone out the window. So although they may still have their millions and billions and whatever, but the moment they know that someone stole from them, all of that is in question. Their safety is in question. Their happiness is in question. So a person has to think of things more than just their own personal interest and more than just simply rationalizing what's right and wrong and being the judge for, for the sake of society based on their own interests. The other reason that people simply allow themselves to lie uh, and, and have this internal permission is also because they, you know, they're kidding. How are they kidding? Oh, I'm going to try to see if I can fool him. If not, I'll say, no, no, I'm just kidding. No big deal. I'll give it back to him later. This is also forbidden. Now, David Melech says, Sheker saneti vait eva, toratecha aafti. In Psalm 119, verse number 163, David Melech says, I've hated falsehood and abhorred it. Your Torah I love. So, first, David Melech tells us how much he hates lies. He hates them. But David Melech doesn't just talk about lies. There are also types of lies. To go into that, we're going to delve into some more of his Tehilim and more of the commentary about it. We go to a new world. The world of David Melech, when he's crying out to us, pleading with us, to listen to his suffering and learn from it. Tehilim number 34. David HaMelech says, Lechu banim shim'uli, yirat Adonai alamitchim. Go, O sons, heed me. I will teach you fear of Hashem. 
So here David Amelech starts by letting us know in uh, chapter 34, Tehillim number 34, verse 12. Go, O sons, heed me, I will teach you the fear of Hashem. So first, David Amelech, as the Malbim says, is letting us know that the teachings of fear of Hashem are not for just the extremely righteous scholars like it is for the other religions where the teachings of the awe of God and the, the fear of Hashem is only for those priests and pastors and, and, and the, uh, the, uh, all of the big ones, the big scholars of those religions. Rather, he's telling all of us, come my sons, I'm going to teach you, little you. How old are you? Five years old? I'll teach you. How old are you? Eight years old? I'll teach you. How old are you? Fifteen? I'll teach you also. How old are you? Twenty? You don't know how to read? I'll teach you also. Twenty-five? I'll teach you. You're a scholar? I'll teach you. You're a woman? I'll teach you. You're a man? I'll teach you. You don't know what you are? I'll teach you also. Wherever you are, come, I'll teach you. Fear of Hashem. Why? That's the foundation. If you have fear of Hashem, you can acquire wisdom. You don't have fear of Hashem? You have nothing. So he already starts by letting us know, come. He's telling us, come my sons. Or he says, go my sons. Meaning, go my sons like you can do it. I will teach you fear of Hashem. Who is the man who desires life, who loves days of seeing good? If you notice, in that verse, he says, Chafetz Chaim is the famous sage, lived approximately a hundred years ago, who put together some of the most critical books in history, needless to say, the last century, whether it's the Mishnah Bura or the Chafetz Chaim, the El uh, about Lashon The Gemara says that one of the sages, Rabbi Alexandri, would go into the market and yell out as if he's selling something. Who wants to live a long life? Who wants to live a long life? Potion for a long life. Potion for a long life. Immediately, people want this way to live a long life. They surrounded him. And the Gemara says, who wants this life? You want life? Okay, here's the potion for a long life. And he would read this verse to them. Who is the man who desires life, who loves days and seeing good? Guard your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. In so many words, he's reading these verses to the crowd. He says, take these verses literally. David Amalek is telling you a story through these verses. But you could also take them literally. You want a long life? David Melech also taught that. He says, if you want a long life, first and foremost, you have to know. There is a system for that. You have to have the merit to have a long life. And you have to not do things that will ruin that life. What ruins that life is speaking deceit, lying, cheating. If you protect your tongue, if... You don't say things that are lies. You're earning yourself a long life. David Melech continues 
And he says, נצור לשונך אמירה ושפתיך מדבר מרמה. דוד המלך says, turn from evil and do good. I'm sorry, guard your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. This is the section that's most relevant to our topic at hand today. David HaMelech says, guard your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. So here David HaMelech is telling us there's multiple things here. Lies are not a simple issue as we've seen already for the last two lectures before this that are talking about lies or three lectures before this. Sometimes parents don't train their kids to guard their tongues and David HaMelech is saying here, come my kids, come my sons, I'll teach you. If your parents don't teach you how to guard your tongue from speaking evil, how to guard your tongue from saying inappropriate words, how to not lie, I'm going to teach you. If your parents didn't teach you, that does not absolve you from the sin. Don't use the excuse, oh, I didn't know this growing up, so therefore it's okay. David HaMelech says, no, no, it's not okay. You have a brain... You use that brain to do other things, to learn some type of skill, to make a living, to get married, to do a lot of other things. That means you have enough of a brain to learn the difference between lies and truth. Even more so, the depth of lies. Turn away from evil and do good is critical. But do you even know how to turn away from evil and do good? It starts off with guarding your tongue from evil. The Radak explains that in these couple of verses, David Melech is telling us about three categories of sin. The sin of thought, the sin of speech, and the sin of actual act. Meaning all three levels of deceit, all three levels of going against the truth. There's the thought, inappropriate thought, inappropriate speech, an inappropriate deed. The first one is evil tongue. The transgression of an evil tongue, which is obviously includes slander, lying about you know all types of things that a person says, cursing a person's uh, parents or other people, judges, kings, and certainly a person that's cursing God himself. There's the blasphemer in the Torah, cursed God and got death penalty that was implemented by Moshe Rabbeinu. So a person that thinks of evil tongue as a single fold where it's simply don't say it's blue if it's black, don't say it's, a, uh, it's true if it's false. No, it's not just that. There's more. There's the, the evil tongue is much more than simply the uh, saying something that's not true. There's also slander, speaking evil about people. If the evil is not for the sake of helping. Sometimes you have to speak evil about certain people in order to warn others. If somebody's a pedophile, if somebody's a heretic, if somebody is a idol worshiper that's pretending to be uh, someone that's helping people, these evil speeches are necessary for the sake of helping other people steer away from this evil. So that evil is not really evil. You're saying things that are evil about him, but they, and they're true. And they're for the sake of doing good for protecting others. 
So there is a necessity to rebuke, there's a necessity to protest, there's a necessity to see things that are sometimes going to seem evil. Like somebody asked me recently, how come you're so nice to your students, but sometimes you're not so nice to other rabbis? Now, if the person is really a rabbi, Torah scholar, there's uh, very few people out there that are going to be nicer to them. Baruch Hashem, I do everything I possibly can to help and uh, to uh, support as many rabbis as we can. But if the person pretends to be a rabbi and is deceiving people, is lying to people, is misleading people, that's not a rabbi. That's a person that's evil. And I'm warning people about such a person. Same way that I would warn people about a a missionary or anybody else that is going to mislead the public and and cause them harm. So to those people, my obligation is to expose them as much as possible and to warn people about them. But the people that are righteous people, that are doing good, I don't think there's many people that are dedicating as much of themselves to help complete strangers as what our organization does. And it's not uh, just with rabbis, it's with a lot of other people that are not necessarily rabbis. So a person needs to know there's a difference. There's a difference. The Torah is not telling you to always say nice things about everybody because if you kiss up and, and, and you appease the evil, you yourself become evil. There's no permission to be nice to everybody, to love everybody. There are certain people that even Hashem himself hates. As he says, et esav saneti. You look at the prophet Micha, it says, Yaakov ahavti et esav saneti. I love Yaakov, but I hated esav. So there are certain people that David Melch says, uh, your haters I hate. He says to Hashem, I hate your haters. So there's a mitzvah to hate certain people. There's a mitzvah to go against certain people. But if the people are good, generally speaking, but just to you, they don't get along with you, or you don't get along with them, that does not give you any permission to hate them. But if they're going against God, and they're hurting people, then certainly you have an obligation. Not only if you're a rabbi, anybody. You have an obligation to expose them. If you have the ability, you have the know-how, you have the audience of some kind. You have this, the ability to speak in some, in some way or do something about it. You have to do something about it. So, David Melech is telling us when it comes to guarding your tongue, it's not just simply telling you don't say anything bad ever. There are some times that it's necessary. But just because it's necessary here doesn't mean it's always necessary. So a person has to obviously use their common sense to know exactly when it's necessary, when it's not. And that common sense is not based on literally common sense of what everybody has, but rather that common sense that is built through learning Torah lectures like this and books that have to do with this to determine what's true and what's false according to the Torah. So evil tongue includes slander, includes false testimony, includes cursing parents, judges, kings, and of course God. The Chafetz Chaim says that one of the reasons why the uh, evil tongue, evil speech is, has such a horrible punishment where a person could literally go to Gehenom for an infinite amount of time for such things, just like Doeg and uh, Achitofel lost their Olam for their evil tongue. And the reason why is because that tongue, that mouth that Hashem gave you is the way that Hashem inserted the Neshama for Adam Rishon, and that's also how a person communicates to God. 
it's literally one of the most critical parts of the human body and therefore when a person desecrates that mouth with falsehood they're desecrating their form of communication with their creator so imagine it's like a uh, uh, you know you want to shake somebody's hand to complete a deal but his hand is uh, full of uh, manure or full of tar obviously you're not going to want to be excited to you're not going to be excited to shake this person's hand same concept the second thing says the radak is that david melech is teaching us that deceit is the second category of sin but deceit is not the same thing as lies deceit is something that requires thoughts evil thoughts with an agenda to deceive another person while while concealing what you really think in so many words like what we talked about before you really think evil of this person you really think something that's against their interest but you make it seem as if you're looking out for them this unfortunately happens in business a lot where there are sometimes customers that are not educated most customers generally speaking are not educated even though there's the internet today and there's a lot of things the average people out there don't have necessarily the time to investigate everything especially if they're very busy and very successful the more successful they are the more uh, uh naive they are at times when it comes to certain uh, certain uh, products they can't know everything about everything so sometimes what they're really buying is you they're buying your personality they're buying your sense of truth so if the salesperson is a con man he could fool these people and, and and literally take as much as he wants from them by simply pretending to be their friend pretending to be looking out for their interest he could tell them listen i'm here to take care of you you know i'm your boy you know i'm here for you anytime you need something you want to buy this property you want to buy this car you want to buy this watch you want to buy this this and that whatever you want but in reality he's not really looking out for them why because it's not it's for him it's not just about making a sale and having a customer for him it's making a sale and ripping these people off meaning it's not enough for him to just simply make a sale and make a profit like you would in any with any other customer he figures this customer is so uneducated about what the truth is that i could simply sell them anything and they wouldn't know the difference i could sell them this thousand dollar computer and simply tell them that this 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 particular model is really the five thousand dollar model and because of my smile my good looks my 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 uh my cute one-liners they're going to trust me and they're going to pay five thousand for it the truth is it's only worth a thousand now your average salesman is saying well that's a good salesman yes he's a good salesman he's going to burn and gain him for a very long time same concept when it goes to the cash advance business many times these people that come from the cash advance business watch our lectures after the initial shock sets in they want to call me they want to talk about it what do they want to talk about listen you're saying that it's not allowed for us to be in this merchant cash advance business because we're charging all this you know high percent interest 40 50 100 400 percent interest but really i'm helping people 
they actually lie to themselves to make themselves believe they're really helping people because in their mind, this guy wouldn't be able to get a loan anywhere else. Little do they know that just because he cannot get a loan anywhere else, which is really no guarantee that he can, he, perhaps he can get somewhere else, but let's say he can't. Let's assume that this poor guy that needs a $100,000 loan or a $10,000 loan, he can't get it anywhere else. Just because he can't get it anywhere else does not give you the permission to rip him off with a predatory loan and charge him 100% interest. Just because he has no other opportunity does not give you the permission to simply rip him apart and turn him into your financial slave because the amount of interest that he pays you every several months is just going to be enough to pay the interest without ever paying the principal. He's never getting out of that loan. By the time he realizes that he's too far in, he's already six, ten loans in. So the average person that's selling this garbage to people, that's selling literally this predator to people, this predatory financial instrument to people, justifies it by saying they can't get it anywhere else. And if they don't get it from me, they'll get it from somebody else. So why shouldn't I get the profit? There is no permission to do such things. This is like saying, listen, if I don't kill this guy, the other mobster is going to kill him. The other sniper is going to kill him. The other uh, uh, hitman is going to kill them. So why shouldn't I get the 25000 per head working for the mob by killing this guy? Because if I don't kill him, the mob is going to hire somebody else for 25000 So might as well me get the profit. Oh, no, that's not the same. It is the same. Just because somebody else will do evil does not give you ever permission to do evil. And unfortunately, what people don't understand is that the money that you are imagining yourself making is what's blinding you. Hence the reason why the Torah says that even scholars are sometimes blinded by money. So it's important for a person to know that if you have customers in your business, whatever your business is, your number one product is not your smile, is not your good looks, is not the product itself. It doesn't matter what you sell. Whether you're selling jewelry or computers or some type of software or anything else, your number one product is your truth. Now, does that truth mean you're not allowed to make a profit? You're perfectly allowed to make a profit, but in an honest way, and that's the difference. The difference between a con man and a good salesman is that the con man will make a lot of profit by lying to people by simply making them believe they're buying one thing, but in reality, they're buying something else. Making them believe they're buying a $5,000 computer that in reality, they're buying, they can buy it anywhere else for a thousand. Making them believe they're buying a $50,000 watch that's really worth only 10,000, not because he got such a good deal on it, but rather because he's cheating them. It's not really worth 50,000. That's a con man. A good salesman is somebody that simply convinces people of this, him being the person because he has their best interest in mind that he's going to be honest with whatever he's offering them. He's not going to lie to them. This is what I have. This is the price that I'm willing to pay for it. Not because it's you as the customer, but if anybody was the customer, that's what I would sell it for. If he happens to make a large profit, on will take a large profit on it. But he doesn't simply determine what the profit is going to be based on the naivety of the people.
He doesn't decide, oh, this one gets this, this one gets that, this one I can fool, this one I... No, there's no need for that. The salesman, his job is not just to make profits. The salesman's job is to provide people what they already need. Now, sometimes you have to remind people that this is what they're looking for. They may be needing something. They may be wanting something. And your job is to simply remind them that this is what's going to serve them and, and, and fulfill their needs. There's no problem of telling, of selling something, a product and showing people that this is something that they would fulfill their desire, would fulfill their, uh, their need, whatever it is. But again, present things at face value, present things for what they really are. There's no problem of, of being very expensive. You have something that even if you bought it for, for $10, but the market says that it's worth a million, there's no problem sending it for selling it for a million. The problem is only selling it for a million when everyone in the market is selling it for $10. But you somehow fool people to make them believe that it's worth 10 million. It's not. So that's the difference. There's the salesman that will do the best he can to provide a service with the people's interest in mind without necessarily ignoring his own desire to profit. And then there's the con man that's going to do whatever he can at any price to convince people to simply take the junk that he doesn't want for prices that they wouldn't pay for anywhere else. Now, David Melech says that this deceit is even worse than a typical lie. And one of the reasons is because when you lie to somebody, if you lie to them about a specific statement, if you slander them even, the damage is generally speaking contained. But if you deceive somebody, which means you've put a lot of thought into it, you've not only stolen this person and whatever you got out of them, but you've also stolen their mind because all the while they think that you are a source of truth. You are a place to go to. You are a place to do business with. You are looking for their best best interest in mind. And that's why, for example, the People that got affected the most out of, let's say, the, the Ponzi schemes and all these financial scandals, the ones that literally were like killed themselves weren't necessarily the ones that got hurt financially the most. Many people, for example, with Murdy, uh, Bernie uh, Madoff, Shemra Shaimir Kav, when he stole billions of dollars from people, some people literally lost all of their money. They had, I don't know, half a million, a million dollars with them and... They lost everything, and some of them had to go back to work. But you didn't see those people kill themselves. You didn't see them kill themselves. But you did see people that he didn't steal all of their money. He stole a lot of money from them, but you saw some of them kill themselves. The same thing with other scandals. Why? Why is the guy that still has money left, a lot of money left, kill himself, while the guy that has nothing left doesn't kill himself? Seems to me like it's supposed to be the opposite. Because the people that usually lost uh, the, the, uh, uh, their life after this or simply became so depressed they couldn't continue is because they believed in him to such an extent that he was like their role model, their idol, their, their, their everything. So he also stole like the sense of truth from them. And it's not just him. It's all thieves. It's all scandals. It's all corruption. 
where when you see people simply losing their desire to live, that's because they have gone to the point where they've lost not just material, they've lost their sense of truth. They no longer what is true anymore. They no longer know what it is because he took it from them. Because until now, they thought this is true. And once he took it, they don't know where to start. They don't know where to go. And literally, they get to the point of insanity by losing their desire to live. So that's why deceit is much, much worse than simply lying to people. Not that lying is not good, as we've already said 50 million times. Lying is horrible. But deceit, where you're, having, you're putting thought behind it, there's an entire agenda to manipulate the market. There's an entire uh, uh, way to, to con the system, to con your customers, to cheat people, to manipulate some type of industry. Those types of things, generally speaking, are much, much worse than what even the general public knows about because there are much more losses created behind the scenes. There's much more damage as a result of these things than usually what is exposed to society. So, David Melech says, the second category of sin is that the evil thoughts, that the deceptive man conceals when he speaks words of friendship. Then, David Melech says, Sur Turn from evil and do good. What's turn from evil and do good? First, David Melech says, this is a warning against the third area of sin, which is the performance of evil deeds. In so many words, that if you have an evil tongue, you're going to lie. If you're going to have a mouth that cannot speak only the truth, eventually it's going to lead you to have deceitful practices, including in your relationships, including in your business which will lead you to the third level of sin which is actually taking action meaning you're not only going to be this guy that lies as a young kid just to get his parents to let him do things he's telling him listen abba ima i'm going to the yeshiva tonight we're going to study all night in reality he's not going to study all night he's going to hang out with his friends and he got you know, since his parents love Torah, they figure that they're going to let him go. Go learn Torah. They don't know that he's going to hang out with his friends. So he goes. He doesn't realize that he each time he lies to his parents and it works, he does now have a bigger klipa that is making him more, more, uh, 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 um, uh, more inclined to lie. He thinks, well, I just went to have a good time with my friends. They think I went to go learn Torah. I went to go do things that uh, they wouldn't want me to do. He doesn't realize he just acquired himself a bigger klipa that is going to make him more likely to lie on other things. Now, if he doesn't resolve this, he's going to start lying about other things too. They're going to ask him, did you do your homework? He's going to say yes, even though he didn't. They're going to ask him, did you uh, go speak to the rabbi for me? He's going to say yes, even though he didn't. They're going to ask him, are you doing the right thing in, in your personal life? He's going to say yes, even though he's not. Whatever they ask him, he's going to be much more inclined to lie, thinking that it's for the betterment. 
uh, of his life. It's for the better good. It's not a big deal. Not realizing that this small lies are making him more likely to start thinking with lies in mind. So now later on, there are different possibilities for him. Where he sees, oh, well, the yeshiva has a contest. And whoever reads the most is going to win the uh, $100. Is going to win the uh, set for the shas. Oh, so I'll do it. Now, he doesn't do it. But somehow he starts thinking, how can I get it without doing it? How can I get the reward without doing it? How can I make them believe that I did what they want me to do without actually doing it? How can I make the teacher think I did the homework without really doing it? How can I make my friends believe that I went somewhere when I really didn't go? And he starts thinking with deceit in mind without thinking much of a big deal. And little by little, this transforms into small little benefits that he gets. He gets a reward here. He gets some money there. He gets certain compliments from here. And this act, this lie has now transformed into acts of deceit. But worse yet, it goes into the third area, which is actual evil deeds. Where this person lives a life of evil while thinking he's good. He can act as a righteous, decent person, but in reality, he could be an a, a abuser. He could be a pedophile. He could be a thief. He could be a lot of horrible things without having any sense of truth left in him, but society thinks he's perfectly fine. There was a person like this that years ago was uh, reported that he uh, fooled the entire or a bunch of people, wealthy people, in a Jewish community up north and... uh, he told him that he was doing all types of real estate deals. But in reality, the whole thing was a Ponzi scheme. This unfortunately wasn't the first or the last one of somebody from our own to, te- to cheat our own. Usually those are the worst criminals. When somebody's an outsider, usually the damage is contained. But when somebody's within, you know, someone Hasidish cheats the Hasidish community, someone's... Sephardi teach the, teaches, uh, cheats the Sephardi community, Ashkenazi cheats the Ashkenazi community. Those are the worst. Those are the biggest damages. Same time, around the same time also happened, there was a guy in Los Angeles that uh, cheated many people from the, uh, I believe it was the Persian community, literally tens and tens of millions of dollars, all types of real estate deals that never existed. The point being is that in this first story that I mentioned with this one guy that looked from, acted from, every, you know, looked religious, everything looked kosher. One day he's discovered this guy's a thief. The whole thing is a Ponzi scheme. None of the deals actually existed. It was a lie. It was a cheat. It was a horrible. Now, of course, the same exact thing times a million happened in the non-Jewish world, in the secular world. You know, whether it's the, uh, the, the big ones or the small ones. There's literally different reporters that uh, some I'm actually uh, I'm in contact with from time to time just because I have an interest in the industry. I was in it for 20 years as far as the uh, uh, financial industry. I always hated con men and, and liars and cheaters and wrote about it also. But 
The point is that there's literally new reports of new ones coming out every day. But the reason why I highlight the one from the community is because of one single, single statement that was made in the report where some of the people that were interviewed to talk about this guy and how it happened and how it unfolded, they said it's not a surprise. It's not a surprise that this guy that looks religious, acts religious, lives in a religious community, it's not a surprise that he's really a con man. It's not a surprise that he stole all that money. Well, how could you say that about another Jew? Simple. He was always a liar. Since he was a kid, everyone knew he was a liar. He was always a troubled kid. He was always involved in bad things. And just one day it seemed like he changed. He somehow fooled everyone to believe that he changed. He never showed any reason for anyone to believe him that he changed. But somehow he convinced people that he changed, that he grew up out of it. And the reality is, he never changed. So, that guy was a liar when he was young, act, looking and doing things and thinking things of deceit as he got a little older and eventually transformed all of that to evil deeds. Hence the reason why David Melech says that third is the worst home. Doing good seems simple. Just do good. The Radak says, do good by performing positive commandments. Because although we're obligated to disregard personal interest, advantage, and honor for the sake of peace, we may not abandon our duties to God even if they arouse the hostility and opposition of the entire world. We cannot seek peace at the expense of turn from evil and do good. Here the Radak and also Rabbeinu Hirsch bring a couple of things, a couple of insights to elaborate on this do good. People think that sometimes as long as what I'm doing is good and it's benefiting people, even if those people are me and my family, then it's allowed. No. First and foremost, you have to know that just like lies are determined by the will of Hashem, meaning that even if what you're saying is one plus one equals two is true according to math, if that result will hurt people and is not the will of Hashem, therefore it's actually a lie. So just like the truth is determined by the will of Hashem, so is good. So is good. Good is determined by the will of Hashem. If that good is good for everyone involved, you're not hurting anyone, you're not manipulating anyone, you're not lying to anyone, then it's good. But if this good is against the will of Hashem, it's a sin, you're lying to someone, you're deceiving someone, you're manipulating someone, then guess what? It's not good. Even though it's good for you, it's profitable for you, it's good for your so-called marriage, it's good for your business, it's good for your community, if you're hurting other people, it's not good. Now, even more so, he says that we cannot abandon our duties to Hashem. Even if our sense of truth, the truth itself, 
our commitment to Hashem arouses, as he says, the opposition of the entire world, we still cannot do it. Meaning, even if you were to say, listen, I know that there's a lot of people making a fortune in the cash advance business. I know that there's people making a fortune in the wig business. But guess what? There is no kosher way to be in either one of those businesses. We've investigated it. We've confirmed it from business as well as religious purposes. We've looked at research from the UN. We've looked at all types of public studies. We've done our own personal studies. We've sent people around the world. Baruch Hashem, I have over two decades of business experience in these fields. All types of things that we've done and we've confirmed. Whatever we've stated in the past, we stand by it and even more so. You're in a wig business, you're dealing with idolatry. That's forbidden for all of mankind, needless to say, for the Jewish people. You're wearing a wig, you have a very serious problem because if that wig is made from real hair, it's coming from idolatry. There is no way to get hair that is not coming from idolatry of India in the world today unless you're literally taking it off of your, your friend's head. You're buying it from some shop, says made in Brazil, it's really India. Says made in China, it's really made India. Says made in England, it's India. Say it is in, uh, made in wherever, in Zimbabwe, it's India. It's always India. Why? It's the only place in the world that giving hair, shaving the entire head, which provides the biggest, uh, best quality hair products, because it's, the, it's with the root, it's with everything. They call it Remy. That is the one place you can get it for free. Why? It's part of their religion. It's part of their sacrifice to their false god. You have a wig on your head that's coming from the, uh, uh, this. You have idolatry on your head. You have a sacrifice on your head which the Jews are forbidden from benefiting from. You're selling these wigs, you're You are causing the public to sin. Don't be surprised if tragedy strikes and don't be surprised about the tragedies that you see other people in the business having. Multiple times I've had people tell me, listen, the local uh, wig maker just had her son die. The local wig maker, her husband just got cancer. The local wig maker has this, has that. I said, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. I made the videos, nothing else I can do. People don't want to listen. They don't want to listen. Tragedies run after these people. If it's not today, it's tomorrow. Unfortunately, sometimes people think that they're doing a big mitzvah. There's one particular woman that she had a miracle happen to her and she committed to covering her hair. She committed to covering her hair, but instead of covering her hair like Sarai Menu, she's covering her hair like some, uh, some uh, Zona from, uh, from a runway show, from the Goim. And she's making a fortune out of it, thinking it's a mitzvah. She's getting interviews by all types of people. She may very well be a wonderful person that's being misguided. But the reality is, truth is the truth, she's causing the public to sin in a massive way. And I don't wish bad for anybody, but the reality is the reality. You benefit from such things that are to'evat Hashem, tragedy will happen at some point or another, whether this world or the next. It's a reality. It's not, it's a wish or like I mean anything. Hashem runs the world. Same concept goes with the people that are in a cash advance business. I know that many of those people in a cash advance business donate a fortune to yeshivot, to synagogues, to the poor, to all types of places. Many times these people are very large, very generous. They give a lot of money. Guess what? All of that money is cursed. All of that money will bring tragedy. Why? It is against the Torah. If it's against the Torah, it's, it's nature to produce evil. 
Just like the Klosenberger Rebbe said to a very wealthy man that he will get punished for every single dollar that he donated that came from his gambling. While he thinks his gambling is going to do good. Why? He's winning some money. He's giving it to yeshivot. What's the big deal? The Klosenberger Rebbe, Allah Shalom, said, you're going to get punished for every single dollar you donated. Why? Because that money is not kosher and therefore those kids that are benefiting from that money in that yeshiva, they're not getting the Torah. They're not learning it the right way. Why? Because there's something impure about it. And those poor kids have no idea that that's why it's happening. You're going to get punished for all of them. All of those people that are in a cash advance business and any other business that we haven't discussed because unfortunately there's many other businesses that are not kosher businesses that produce things that are against the Torah, tragedy will happen. It's only a matter of time. Why? That's its nature. Now seeing what I just said certainly is going to cause many people to lose their mind. Huh? How is he saying this? How dare he? Who gave him the right? You know who gave me the right? The Radak gave me the right. The Radak himself writes here, even if a person is going to cause the entire world to go against him for saying the truth, the truth of Hashem, let him not deter from that. Rather, continue saying the truth. Continue saying what HaKadosh Baruch Hu said. Even if the whole world goes against you. Why? Because only the truth will eventually survive. Only the truth will help people. Even those people that are initially hurt by it, because now he has to leave his multi-million dollar business making cash advance loans that are against the Torah. Even though that means she has to shut down a multi-million dollar operation that's selling Abu Dazarah. Even though that means that he has to get rid of this business that's selling all types of fake goods as real. Even though that means that a bunch of people are going to have their life turn into the turmoil. That is still good. Why is it good? Because now that they've left bad, they can start doing good. They still have a chance to do good. Run away from evil, then do good. Don't think for a moment that you can justify the evil by doing good. Don't think for a moment that just because you can donate a million dollars or a billion dollars to some yeshiva, to some institution, that justifies the illegally acquired money. Illegal according to the Torah, illegal according to the law of the land, regardless of which illegal, it's against the Torah. There's no permission to go against the law of the land. You don't like the land, leave the land, wherever that land may be. But the reality is that a person needs to know the truth is the truth. And even if the whole world goes against you for saying the truth, do it. Why? Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu is behind you. And there's no one in this world that could hurt you or help you without HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself signing off on it. And if you are going to say the truth to people, even if that truth hurts some of them, even if that truth hurts all of them, ultimately it will help every single one of them that follows the truth. Because at the end of the day, Hashem says, mine is the money, mine is the gold, says the God, the master of legions. They'll be okay. 
If I want them to have money, they don't need to get it from inappropriate places. They don't need to get it from illegal businesses. They don't need to get it from Abu Dazara. They don't need to get it from all types of places that are against the Torah. If I want them to be successful, if I want them to live in a $5 million house, if I want them to donate a million dollars a day to all types of yeshivot, guess what? I'll do it. I'll allow them to do it. How? Any business. Doesn't have to be from this business. It could be from selling Q-tips to hotel chains. It could be from making little covers for iPhones. It could be making paper. It could be making dog food. It could be making all types of things. It doesn't have to be from this. And that's the biggest deceit of all. When a person thinks that the only way they're going to make a million dollars is through this illegal business, that's the biggest deceit of all that hurts more than all. Why? Because he believes that the only way he's going to make his money is by doing something against Hashem. What he doesn't realize, that's kfirah, that's heresy. It's against HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the highest magnitude. Why? Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the one that provides you. Which means that he would have provided you the same amount of money regardless of what you did. Had you worked at some hotel as a clerk or had you worked as a real estate mogul, he would have given you the same. Had you worked as somebody that's making little sales of the chains or had you worked as someone that's making fake chains look like they're real, he would have given you the same. Had you worked as a little clerk at some bank or had you worked as a CEO of a major corporation, he would have given you the same. How? He's the one that's in charge. And to say otherwise, to think otherwise, is 100% kfirah. It's 100% heresy. To think that you succeeded because of this business is heresy. It's kfirah against Hashem. It's literally the biggest deceit of all. You are lying to yourself. You're lying to yourself to make yourself believe that you are in charge of the money. That's the most insane thing in the world to believe, but unfortunately many people do. Why? Because deceit is not only something that affects the victim, the deceit also affects the perpetrator who starts believing the deceit to be true. So much so that they literally don't see truth until it screams at them in the face. Yiratzon, that every single person that heard this has a sense of truth jump out from their heart even if they forget where the source is and who gave it to them and who yelled at them in the face it makes no difference to me let that truth come out live with that truth run after that truth and run away from all the evil and Bezat Hashem each and every single one of us will do tshuva and will be all all lagoim or to the nations, including our own. Thank you very much for learning with me. May Hashem bless each and every single one of you. And Bezat Hashem, share this and get people to see the truth once and for all. Bacha